So the parts of your life that you can handle, that you can do, whether it's mowing the lawn, whether it's studying for a test, God seems to be irrelevant for those parts, right? But for the parts that you really need help with, or maybe for the the worst parts of your life, if you have the the death of a loved one, or, or times where you feel so helpless, those are the times where you know that you need God to be active. And so I think a lot of us act as if God is a God of the gaps or a God of of the leftovers, where it's either me or humanity working or it's God working. What's wrong with that? Is there anything wrong with that? I mean, it seems to put humanity in competition with God. And as we come to Psalm 121, which is really a a beautiful psalm, though it's a short one, uh, I think we can get a lot out of it. God is is shown to us to be the God who who protects all the time. All the time. Not just the times where, where we think we're totally out of control, but he is a keeper, a protector, a, a watcher all the time. But I think our, our biggest hurdle the biggest problem we have with this psalm is simply being able to, to say it. Being able to, to understand what type of person would say this psalm and really mean it. Because the psalms, as a lot of part of scripture, it's not just teaching us certain facts about who God is or giving us an ideal of, of what a prayer could be like. The psalms also want to craft us into the image of God that we were meant to be. And so we're going to look at, at Psalm 21 and try to, to get into the, the mind of what sort of posture should we have to God because of who he is, because he, of who he wants us to be, according to this psalm. Let's pray and ask for his insight and spirit. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you that you have not left us groping and you are not satisfied with simply uh, showing yourself by nature or by uh, weak and ambiguous sentiments and indications and signs. Lord, you have given us your revealed word. You have shown us once and for all who you are in Christ. So we do pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, make your word come alive, that we would submit to it, that we would be able to hear it, that you'd open our hearts and our ears and our eyes of faith to be able to trust and believe you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this, uh, this psalm, Psalm 121, is a part of a section of uh, 15 psalms, 120 to 134, which are the song of ascents, meaning you ascend when you go to Jerusalem. So it seems like these songs would have been used uh, during a time of, of great uh, holiday and festivals and, and lots of celebration. And so what we want to imagine is there is a, a humongous influx of pilgrims coming into Jerusalem, and they're singing these psalms in different contexts depending on the holiday. And so 121 is, is the second in this group. So you have 120, which is really about distress. It's like the beginning of the journey, and they are in despair. And you can imagine being being 
cast far away from Jerusalem and the temple and, and where God really dwells. And, and he's calling out for God to deliver them from war and all of these, these people that are against them. And then they, they are on their way in 121. And so 121 really is a psalm of, of journey. It's a psalm of pilgrimage because 122, they get to the temple. And they celebrate and they say, praise God, when people tell us we can go to the house of the Lord, and, and they're celebrating. 121 is in, in between. It's when we're a pilgrim. And so if we think about the context, that helps us get into it because I want us to really think about what it means to become those who need God's protection. That sounds weird, but again, it, to become those who need to say this psalm, who want to say this psalm. And so the first uh, point that I want us to see is that he is casting himself upon God. He is a pilgrim, which means what? Which means he's going somewhere. He's not just lost. He's not wandering through the wilderness. He has a map. He has a journey, a place to go. And he has a destination. Is that how you imagine your life? Do you consider yourself a pilgrim? Sort of seems like sort of a old word or kind of a antiquated word. But it's a very common, common description of a Christian. Both the Old and New Testament, God's people are described as pilgrims, right? They're described as a pilgrim, one grand pilgrim from, from Abraham all the way till they finally get to Jerusalem and get to build the temple. There's a grand pilgrimage. There's a pilgrimage in the, in the wilderness in between the Red Sea and getting to Israel. And even in the New Testament, we're described as elect exiles. We're in exile because we're not yet in heaven, in the new heavens and new earth. And so what does a pilgrim do? He looks up. He looks forward to where he's going. Where's your life going? Is there a purpose? It's our, our, our life and our view of history is not that it's cyclical. It's not cyclical. It's not just everything sort of comes and goes, this too shall pass, and we just sort of go, and there's no real destination. What's true of the biblical worldview is that we're going somewhere, that God has a purpose for you, and we haven't reached it yet. And we can't be that content in this world because we're on our way. So this pilgrim is looking forward they're looking up, they're going somewhere, and of course they are looking outside themselves. And this too can be very uh, hard in our culture, but it's an assumption in this song. He's in the valley. He's in the valley of, of this journey, uh, and so he looks up to the hills and to the mountains as a place of danger. And quite literally it was dangerous. You don't know what you're going to expect on the way to Jerusalem. You could encounter all sorts of, of wild animals. You could encounter uh, extreme heat. It was a treacherous journey to get to Jerusalem. So he looks up to the mountains. He's like, how am I going to get there? Where is my help going to come from? And so the assumption is that he is, he is humbled. He is afflicted. He is in fear and danger. And that, too, is a characteristic of a pilgrim, someone who is casting himself on God, has to be humble looking outside themselves. Now take a moment and think about that because if we're really going to grapple with this psalm and, and grapple with the Christian life, it means that we have to, at the core of our identity, 
pursue something that is the exact opposite of what the world values. Because if you think about it, everything that we are told to do or to be is catered to us to be the in-charge consumer, right? You're not supposed to look outside yourselves or look up. You're the one who's got it right. You're autonomous. You're the person who is in charge. Everything's individualized and catered to your preferences, whether it's on your phone or whatever. The the more me that gets to do what I want to do, that is the purpose in life. Right? We should we should be aware that we get this everywhere. That the world feeds this to us, whether we know it or not. And it's the exact opposite of humility. It's the exact opposite of needing to cast ourselves on upon God. And so to become a Christian or to live the life of a Christian is to do something that is going to seem very inconvenient, very countercultural, very uh, not natural. Because we're being told, pick yourself up by your bootstraps and express who you are. You have, you have it in yourself to be who you are. And here, we're told, where does my help come from? It doesn't come from inside. It comes from outside. It comes from up. It comes from God. Cast yourself upon God is this first huge point. Just to be able to say the psalm is to realize that we have this need But one thing we learn about God here is not only that he's the one we can cast him on, but cast yourself upon God all the time. All the time. And this is where we get more to the sort of God of the gaps. All the time. Listen to how he puts it in Psalm 121. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he keeps Israel will neither, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. I'm sure none of us have asked, so when does God go to sleep? You wouldn't like give a time of day. We realize God doesn't sleep, but think about what that means. That he really never is off his game. That you have never caught God off guard. Do you realize that? In in your deepest and darkest screw-up, you have not caught God off guard. You haven't surprised him. You haven't done something that he never saw coming. That should actually be really good news. There's good news in this psalm. This is the one who he is. Verse 6, it also says, The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord, in verse 8, will keep your going out and your coming in. He is keeping you all the time. All the time. What would that mean for your day-to-day life? What would that mean for not just giving God your, your leftovers, or, or seeing him only in the most desperate times, but all the time. That he's working all things for your good and his glory. That he keeps you even in your sin. Even in your sin. Even when it seems like God is so far away, he is keeping you. And so this third point I want to look at is not only cast yourself on God, not only catch yourself on God all the time, but to realize that this is a God 
of grace. We see it here in the, in the psalm itself in a couple of main ways. One is uh, the divine name is all over this psalm. And so I think in the bulletin when it says, Lord, it's all caps. And that means it's Yahweh, or however they said it. We don't really know how he said it. But this was the intimate divine name that God revealed to Israel. This is not just your general uh, word for God. This is like your name, Tyler, Kevin, Sean. This is the name of God. And what it means is that I have revealed myself to you. I am your God. You are my people. He is saying, I, I am the one who is keeping you. I want an intimate, personal relationship with you. And though you haven't deserved it, and he tells Israel this over and over, you haven't deserved it. It's not because you're special. I am your God. You are my people. That's the God that we get to cast ourselves on. Do you imagine that you know the name of God? That you know him personally and intimately? Of course, this was revealed in even greater clarity in Christ. The name of God. We see him fully in Christ. But he, he keeps us in this covenantal, intimate way. But it's not just keep. I think keep is actually a pretty weird, uh, weak translation. Keep. He keeps you. Yeah, that's pretty good. It seems more that it's, it's protect and guard over. It's watch over. That's the sort of protection that God is providing here. That word is repeated over and over in this, this real short psalm. It comes up six times, Shamar, for, uh, to watch over, to guard. Uh, it's overwhelmingly the theme of this psalm. But if you, if you uh, know the famous blessing of number six, this is from Aaron, this became like the go-to blessing for Israel. How does it start? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's that same word, keep you. The Lord bless you and keep you. This is who God is. He is the one who keeps you, who protects you, who watches over you, who guards you. But there's a question. There's a, a sort of, there's a confusion throughout the Old Testament between is it God doing the one who's keeping and guarding? Or is it us? Because humanity, way back in Genesis 2, is given the mission to keep and guard the garden. And you could describe our purpose as bearing the image of God is to, on his behalf, take care of the world, to protect it, to guard it. It's that same word, keep. And so you want to, you, you should be asking, so am I supposed to be? protecting and keeping those I love, protecting my life, or is God doing the protecting? And this comes up in different contexts. It's the same thing with blessing. You have this amazing promise, the Lord will bless you. But Abraham also is told to go out and be a blessing to all the nations. So which one is it? Are we told to do something here? Are we told to be the keeper? Or is God the keeper? Which one? Well, I want us to look at that New Testament reading, Colossians 3. Let me just read it again. It's, it's, uh, it's quite ridiculously amazing. Um, Colossians 3 says this. 
If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You notice what he's saying there? If you've been raised with Christ, who would that be? Everyone who's a Christian. Anyone who's in Christ. You've been raised. You've been given a new life. That's the assumption. He doesn't even make a big deal out of it here. He's already talked about it earlier. Set your minds on things that are above. Why? Is it because this world doesn't matter? Is it because material things don't matter? No, that's not why. It's because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so if we were to ask, are the promises of God true to Israel? Well, there are times where they're really wondering that. Psalm 44 is a great example where they say, hey, we heard how great of a God you are. We've heard from our ancestors all these stories about how much you saved us. Where are you now? What are you doing? You seem like you're sleeping. It really seems like you're sleeping. I know we say on these holidays, the Lord is my keeper and he doesn't sleep or slumber, but where are you now, God? Psalm 44 gets quoted in the New Testament in Romans 8, where Paul tells us the answer. Where are you now? He is in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the God-man who takes care of both sides of those promises. Where we see the how is the Lord our keeper in Christ? He fulfills the promise. I will be your God. I will be the one who will not forsake you. And he also takes care of the human side because he lives the human life we are supposed to live. He does the keeping and the protecting. He faces sin in the devil and the temptation. He takes care of both sides of the promises. And so if we're to ask, is it me or is it God? Yes, in Christ. So this final point that I want to linger on a little bit more is cast yourself upon God all the time, the God of grace in Christ. It's in Christ that makes all the difference. Because now it's not that God of the gaps. Now it's not, all right, is this my turn? God did all his stuff 2,000 years ago, now it's my turn. Or it's my turn from 9 to 5 when I got my job that I can handle on my own, and then when I go to church, that's God's turn to do his work. It's not that. Where is our life according to Christ? I mean, according to Colossians 3, it's in Christ. It's some sort of deep, intimate union that we have been waiting for throughout the Old Testament to become fulfilled that, yes, the Lord is your keeper and he's going to allow you to do the keeping in Christ. He's going to be doing the keeping through Christ in you. You are being brought in, made more and more into the image of Christ. I hope this is uh, uh, making, making some sense because I think it totally transforms the way we approach the Christian life. Because the other thing about the God of the gaps is that, if it's not clear already, it makes God irrelevant for so much of your life. You don't need God for all the parts that you think you can handle on your own. And sometimes in, in 
Um, even in efforts of evangelism, there can be critiques of certain ways where we can, we can try to do a lot of things. If we want to get people to make a decision and put them on our list and do all these things that are produced by human efforts. And we can do things that humans can do without God's Spirit involved at all. And if we act like we can do that, what have we done? We've made God irrelevant to evangelism in that case or to whatever part of your life you may be considering. Do you act as if God is irrelevant in big chunks of your life? What do you need the Spirit for in this case or in that case? Now, we're told that our whole life is hidden with Christ and God, that he is a keeper and a protector all the time. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. But that's also why Jesus says, if you want to save your life, if you want to keep it, you need to die to your old life. Because that old life is not going to be in Christ. To become united to him, we need this whole new outlook where we are the the humble pilgrim needing to cast ourselves upon another, not on ourselves. Do you see the good news in that? Do you see the good news that you don't have to keep picking yourself up by your bootstraps and act like it's all up to you, that you're alone? That some condemnation from wherever you're receiving it, from, from the world, from your family, from wherever it may be, that stuff doesn't have to define you anymore because your life is is hidden, is protected in God. It's really an amazing, amazing truth. Let me read this passage from 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. How is it true that God never sleeps or slumbers? How is it true that God really does protect us now? doesn't seem like he protects us. If you're in Houston, you sure don't feel protected right now, do you? Well, according to this passage in 1 Peter, it's because your inheritance is already there in heaven. And according to Colossians 3, it's not just your inheritance, it's, it's yourself. It's your treasure. It's your identity. That's who you really are, is where Christ is. That's what happens to a Christian. They get a whole new life. We're living it out now, and we pray that it will be true on earth as it is in heaven already. He's already guarded you. He's already captured you in Christ. That's the God we get to cast ourselves upon. That's the one that we come to. It's already imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. God's power is working that. Who by God's power are being guarded. And so when we are on that journey, wherever we are, when we ask this question that I'm sure we all ask, where does my help come from? It's not a 
nameless, mysterious being that we don't know or we'll never get an appointment with. It's not some inner strength that we have to find, that we have to just be, be beating ourselves up against. It is, it, it's, such a, it's so oppressive. I mean, as, as Eastern philosophy becomes more and more popular, it strikes me as so oppressive because it says, your strength is in you. It's like, thanks. Thanks a lot. I don't need more strength for myself. I need, I need to see Christ more. That's where my strength is. And that's inexhaustible. That's the place where we will approach God's temple. That's where we will get the inheritance that he is guarding, that he has purchased on the cross. And so, as we start to think about coming to Christ in his table, just notice that if you are outside of Christ now, if you don't know him, the crime is that you're simply too proud to see Because all that a Christian has done is said, where's my help? I need help from outside myself. A Christian has said, I can't save myself. And so, we don't have a lot of time to go into the nature of sin, but the sin to a Christian is not just bad things that we do. It's not just certain mistakes that we make. It's fundamentally being blind and not realizing that you actually are blind. You're too proud to admit the witness of other people who say there's a whole other reality here. There's there's a whole other truth that God in Christ really is who he says he is. And that you can cast yourself upon him. And so sin becomes this sort of madness where we're, we're too proud to see. We're too proud to ask for help. Like the drowning person who's being offered a life preserver and is saying, I don't need one. I'm not actually drowning. And so if that is you today, know that Christ is here. He is among us and he is saying to you, Come. Come to all of you who are weary and burdened and are sick of trying to act as if you don't have to ask for help. The self-sufficiency and the pride and the autonomy that our world forces us to value, that's not where life is. That's where slavery is. That's where bondage is. If you are in Christ, if, if this makes sense, to you to some degree? Do you realize the ever-present helper and protector that God is to you? Do you realize that the Lord is your keeper? The Lord Jesus Christ, the one that we know and have, have seen, the one that came to die for you, that's the one who never sleeps and who is guarding you now and guarding your treasure in heaven. Is that a daily reality to you, or do you fall into the God of the gaps? Let's take a moment and prepare ourselves to 
come to this table that becomes a picture not only of God, but it becomes a picture of our life as we are feasting on Christ. Let's take a moment and reflect on God's word.